0: Welcome to The Cognitive Dissident, a show for non-ideologues. I'm your host, Samuel Claiborne. On this podcast, I'm going to take apart and analyze thorny issues, those that display the highest knee-jerk quotient, the things we often believe implicitly in lockstep with our peers. These assumptions are often the most dangerous because so often what we want to believe becomes what we do believe, regardless of the facts. People ask me why I am doing this. I'm doing it for three reasons. One is that I have an obsession with injustice. If I think something is unjust, it's very hard for me coming from a family of activists to not respond. I was brought up fighting for women's rights, gay rights, civil rights, reproductive rights, against the Vietnam War, against nuclear power. Uh, I've been an activist my whole life. Two, I am finding that my camp, the left-wing liberal camp, is becoming increasingly illiberal and intolerant. Uh, It is mirroring what I see on the right. You have to agree with every tenet of whatever the current flavor of wokedom is, or you are immediately racist, transphobic, sexist, whatever. There's no nuance people are being hurt on the left and on the right because of a kind of moral panic absolutism. It's you're either with us or you're against us. And if you speak against any of the orthodoxy of the right or the left, you will be cast out by your people. And that, that may happen to me. I am not doing this to piss people off. I sincerely want to engage in and open dialogue and I hope to change some minds and I hope to have my mind changed on occasion. I want this to be a place of inquiry where we inquire into why do I believe that? Why have I always believed that? Is is there a reason or is it habit? The third reason is something I will discuss in depth in this particular episode and in others, which is how journalism has changed into editorializing. I am starting to feel that all media, left-wing, right-wing, liberal, conservative, mainstream, as well as fringe, is extremely siloed and is uh, experiencing more and more editorial framing where editorial opinions are being folded into supposed news stories. Uh, Often stories are being prefaced with what you should believe and even how you should think about an issue. So even if we partake mostly from the liberal side of the media ecosystem, we're not being presented with facts. We're being presented with a framed pat narrative that often either tells only one side of the story, omitting extremely pertinent facts that might mitigate against that opinion, or often absolute propaganda, an absolute pat statement like noted transphobic J.K. Rowling. That doesn't belong in a news story. Noted transphobic JK Rowling is an opinion. And to frame a piece of journalism with it is to tell you what to think. So I'm gonna be looking at these on the right and the left. And why on the right and the left when the right is trying to take over this country in a legalistic coup? Because lots of smarter people than I are yelling and screaming about that. And you've probably got it coming out of your ears if you are on the left end of the spectrum. I am more interested in finding people who want their beliefs challenged, who want maybe a good intellectual tussle with me and with other people, who believe in civil discourse about intellectual topics, and who are willing to entertain the idea that some of their most cherished media is um, maybe not as pernicious and evil as OAN or Fox or Newsmax, but are still uh, spoon-feeding them a narrative. So each episode is going to have a pretty simple framework. I'm going to start with my basic beliefs on some aspect of human rights, political speech, some current event. And I'll hopefully back those beliefs up with thoughts, with science, with facts, sometimes with the thoughts of much smarter people than myself. I may discuss how my own beliefs have altered over time, and I hope in future podcasts to have guests on who may agree or violently disagree with my positions or find some third completely unknown position that I never even thought about. And then you will have fun deciding what you think, whether you still think what you thought, whether you've changed your mind, and maybe we can engage each other on my sub stack. Today's episode is going to involve a very specific aspect of transgender rights and privileges. So here is my starting place on transgender rights in general, and perhaps more broadly, my beliefs on whether transgender people are the same as the gender they've transitioned to or whether they are unique genders. First of all, I think transsexual people deserve the right to marry, to have children, to adopt children, to be protected from discrimination in employment and housing, etc. That's true whether they're pre-op, post-op, in transition, or intend never to fully transition. That makes me think I'm a supporter of trans rights, rather than transphobic. But not so fast, because I do diverge from a lot of the woke world regarding trans folks in some important ways. First of all, I think that trans women are equal to biological women, but I refuse to participate in the charade that they're identical. Same with trans men. It may be silly to raise this point, but I have literally lost friends because I've refused to say that trans women are the same as women and trans men are the same as biological men. And I insist on drawing distinctions where those distinctions are important. And I refuse to partake in this postmodern conflation of the word equal with the word identical. Equal does not mean identical. Trans women are equal to biological women. But as I previously would have thought is utterly self-evident, but apparently no longer is, trans women simply are not identical to biological women. This should be painfully obvious to anyone who stops and thinks about it. Yet the current orthodoxy of wokedom, upheld with near-religious fervor, is that one must state that they are indeed the same, and that anyone who refuses to is an apostate. In fact, some facets of wokedom still insist that Gloria Steinem et al. were correct in their absurd assertions that gender is an entirely cultural construct, with no basis in biology. An idea that was utterly ludicrous on its face when it was introduced, and has only become more so as our knowledge of biology has grown. To my mind, people who believe such things, ample scientific evidence to the contrary, are no less ridiculous than those who deny climate change. Ideology should never trump science, and we should never avert our eyes or our intellects from ideas and facts we find inconvenient, discomforting, or even downright threatening to our worldview. That's why I'm sometimes relieved when I actually change my mind <laughs> when somebody uh, in person or through something I read or watch changes my mind. I've actually gotten a lot of crap for my insistence that trans women are different than women, which I think is painfully obvious. The irony is that many native American tribes had room for more than two genders in their worldviews. I suspect that if I were a Lakota elder, Many woke white folk might have trouble arguing with me, as they would most likely place me above them, insisting that I am wiser than they because of my cachet as an indigenous person of color. Essentially, their inverted racism would force them to pay fealty to me as some sort of noble savage. Oh no, they'd never use that phrase. Goddess forbid. But they might insist that any indigenous person, by virtue of their indigenous heritage alone, would be ipso facto kinder, gentler, less bigoted, more environmentally sensitive and wiser in their knowledge of gender, which amounts to the same thing Native American history from Native American slavery to torture, to human sacrifice, to rape, to warfare, begs to defer. But that's a subject for another podcast. Since I'm a straight, white, cisgender male, I'm afforded no such fealty, but rather am automatically discounted because I supposedly hold all of the power on the planet just by dint of my straight, white, cis maleness. Beyond the fact that I refuse to fall into line and parrot this insistence that transgender people are the same, I found that, much to my surprise, I'm also at odds with a lot of my fellow lefties about things like bathrooms. Basically, I insist that plumbing matters. No pun intended. For example, if you consider yourself a trans woman, but you still have a penis, at the end of the day, I think you need to use the men's room. I also think that you have no business being in a woman's locker room, spa, etc. The fact that you insist you're a woman cuts no ice with me for at least two reasons. One, men tend to be much more sexually predatory than women. If some guy insists he's a woman, but hasn't actually transitioned, he may be more than a peeping Tom. And this actually has occurred. You've got to walk the walk. If you want to use the other bathroom, you need to transition. 2. There was a recent case where a person claiming to be a pre-op trans woman went to an all women spa. A woman got very upset about this as her 8-year-old was exposed to a naked man, penis and all. The Woke Left, including one of my favorite podcasts on the media, covered the woman's supposedly transphobic tirade which had been videotaped and gone viral, but none of them seemed to have an ounce of empathy for her position. As far as she was concerned, a naked man had invaded their sacred space and exposed himself to her daughter. It's highly ironic that many trans people and their lockstep supporters seem super sensitive about how they are portrayed and received, but have no empathy for other people's sensitivities. Many people do not want their young daughters exposed to naked men. Deal with it. In fact, more than deal with it, respect it. Respect the fact that you're not the center of the universe and that other people's mores and feelings and sensitivities matter too. So yes, for me, the plumbing matters. If you've had your hormone therapy and reassignment surgery, then by all means use the bathroom you associate with the gender you've transitioned to. But until then, well, if it walks like a man and its dick swings like a man's, much of the world quite rationally sees that person as a man. Moreover, I can well imagine a woman who'd suffered sexual assault being triggered by the appearance of someone who appears to be a man in a bathroom she thought was reserved for women only. And that's just one of the fascinating examples of where the moral absolutism of identity politics crashes and burns, unable to reconcile a nuanced, intersectional reality with its desire for an insistence upon a simple, perfect world composed of obvious binary choices. Today's podcast is about just such a fascinating state of affairs, two aspects of intersectionality butting up against each other across purposes, the rights of trans women versus the rights of biological women, specifically in the world of competitive sports. But first a short divergence. Before he became a murdering asshole, Oscar Pistorius was known as the Blade Runner. Born without lower legs and feet, he'd learned to run on specially fitted composite blades, and he could run really fast. But when he was allowed to compete against normal men in track and field, I was aghast. Why? Because his blades gave him a measurable biomechanical advantage over other men. Their spring literally made them more efficient than normal human calves and feet for running. My sense of fairness was insulted. This seemed to be clearly, manifestly unfair. It was a shame the man was born that way, but giving him prostheses that gave him a measurable advantage and then allowing him to compete with them against anatomically normal men hardly seemed a fair remedy. I was kind of amazed that the various sports governing bodies disagreed with me on this. It was great that Pistorius had learned to run. He should run his heart out. It was amazing. It was inspiring, but he shouldn't have been allowed to compete in things like the Olympics or national and international championships. His unique situation, his disability turned into a superpower by technology was cheating as far as I was concerned. And I could not fathom how his rights superseded the rights of all of those other male athletes. Was his disability worth putting the hundreds, perhaps thousands of elite runners he might compete against in the course of his career at a disadvantage? So it is with trans women being allowed to compete with biological women in track and field and other competitive sports. Trans women's rights seem to automatically supersede the rights of biological women to compete against others on a level playing field. But wait a minute, you may be saying, trans athletes and their advocates insist, in fact, the entire liberal-to-center media seem to insist, that once their testosterone levels have been brought into the same range as so-called normal or biological women, it's all good, right? At that point, they insist, again, that these trans women are the same as their biologically female counterparts, at least as far as competing in sports is concerned. Well, no, they're not. And the fact that all of these people and media entities elide this fact, whilst those on the right actually look it squarely in the face, is a great cause of concern to me. Why are we liberals being fed a siloed, censored, distorted message? As distorted as anything, those on the right are being fed on other subjects. Sadly, this episode of this podcast will not be the last to examine how editorial commentary slipped into journalism and facts cherry picked while others are deliberately omitted pollutes the entire media ecosystem from the far right to the far left. So what exactly am I talking about? What differences remain after reassignment surgery and hormone treatment? There are several and I won't cover all of them because we could spend all day on it. So I'll just mention a few. The most obvious of all are the differences in the skeletal construction of the male and female pelvis, differences that reassignment surgery and hormone therapy don't change, but which you will rarely, if ever, find discussed in any left or centrist publication, unless those differences are being rejected out of hand as immaterial. Women's pelvises have a compromise built into them that men's don't. That is, they're built wider to allow for childbirth. Men can run faster for several reasons, but the biggest one is that their pelvises are optimized for running, while nature had to make women's pelvises less optimized for that task, so they could bear live babies. This key difference in geometry is as immutable as the laws of physics, and because of it, men have a built-in biomechanical advantage as runners, especially in sprints. Why especially in sprints? because there is another difference between men and women that gives men a theoretical advantage in sprinting, and women a small advantage in long distance running, and that is that women generally have a higher proportion, usually 25 to 35% higher, of what are called slow twitch muscles. These muscles are great for endurance, but lack the explosive power that's required for all out sprints. Men obviously have the reverse. They generally have a higher proportion of fast twitch muscles, which gives them advantages in any sport where explosive, short-duration muscular work is required. But the biggie in running is that difference in pelvic geometry. And it's so big that it overrides all other differences, including fast and slow twitch musculature. This one structural difference still provides men with enough of an advantage that they beat women soundly in marathons too. In fact, in any sport that I can think of, men soundly trounce women when they are allowed to compete. Venus Williams has said the same. She has said that the men in tennis are much faster and much stronger and that it's a completely different sport and that she would be annihilated against not only a top-seeded tennis player, but probably a tennis player in the top hundreds. The biomechanical efficiency of that optimized male pelvis is just too big an advantage for women to overcome and there are other advantages. Some of these advantages can be altered by hormone therapy like the lean to fat ratio. Women tend to have more fat, men tend to have more muscle on average. That can be altered somewhat through hormones, but skeletal differences cannot. Other biomechanical advantages arise from that one structural fact, that optimized pelvis, not the least of which is the Q angle. From an anatomical standpoint, women generally have these wider pelvises and a resulting increased angle of the femur from the hip to the knee called the Q-angle. This angle is generally naturally higher in women due to that wider pelvis. Biological men, with their lower average Q-angle, can transmit more force per stride into the ground than biological women can. In addition, female knees tend to be stabilized more by ligaments, while male knees tend to have more muscular stabilization, and women and girls in general tend to have greater joint mobility, and their ligaments are more flexible than those of their male counterparts which often leads to more knee injuries, ankle sprains, foot injuries, and other issues. And there are still other extremely germane differences, one being the tendency for men to have broader shoulders and to have more upper body musculature, both of which lead to more upper body strength. Hormone therapy has no effect on the skeletal differences and a limited effect on the muscular ones. It cannot change every aspect of musculature at all. Don't believe me, let's look at a major story in the news this week about transgender swimmer Leah Thomas, who's been shattering records left and right. As a regular consumer of sites like CNN and HuffPost, I've read nearly identical articles on both sites trumpeting these achievements. Leah Thomas is simply obliterating records and in so doing is leaving biologically female competitors in her wake. How badly is she trouncing the competition? In a recent swim meet, she won by over 38 seconds. If you've ever watched a swim meet, from a high school meet to the Olympics, you know that this is unheard of. Such competitions are usually won by mere seconds, sometimes fractions of seconds. Both articles seem to celebrate Ms. Thomas' achievements without questioning whether it is fair for her to compete against biological women. Ms. Thomas is fawningly quoted about overcoming challenges as she came out as trans, and then unironically states, quote, being trans has not affected my ability to do this sport and being able to continue is very rewarding, end quote. Au contraire, Ms. Thomas, transitioning was the best thing you could have done for your career, for you are no longer competing against other men, you are competing against women whose skeletal and muscular construction simply cannot compete with your own. Interestingly, neither story bothered once to speak to a single one of Ms. Thomas's competitors to get their take on how they felt about this person who was suddenly outperforming them to an unprecedented, even humiliating, extent. Nope. The frame around the story is that this is a great thing a human rights victory, and any narrative to the contrary is completely elided. The more sotto voce follow-on is that if you disagree with this view, you're transphobic. Right-wing outlets like the New York Post are outraged by her dominance in swimming. And you know what? They're right. This is fundamentally unfair, and the proof is right there out in the open in those absurd race timings. I consider myself a lefty somewhere between a liberal and a radical. So it's a sad, sad day when I find myself agreeing with odious COVID denier, Trump coup supporter and junior fascist South Dakota governor, Kristi Noem. But hell, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And governor Noem has just introduced a bill banning transgender females in sports in order to support quote, a level playing field unquote for female athletes. Immediately, she was called a bigot, as the concerns of all of those transgender female athletes were chorused by the loyal liberal opposition. What was missing from what I thought of as my side of the political spectrum was any voicing whatsoever of concerns for what is happening to biological female athletes. Meanwhile, some of Leah Thomas's UPenn teammates are refusing to applaud her first-time finishes, many applauding the second-place biological female swimmers instead. Some have even cried at Thomas's wins. The UPenn administration, from their coach on up, has warned these swimmers not to criticize Thomas. So the only athletes speaking up are doing it anonymously. You have to understand, right-wing media is on fire about this story and is full of interviews and quotes from Leah Thomas's disaffected teammates. But you're probably hearing none of it. So why are CNN, HuffPost, The Guardian, etc. virtually silent on it? More to the point, why are we, all of us, regardless of where we see ourselves on the political spectrum or where we fall on certain issues, okay with actively being shielded from dissenting opinions and inconvenient truths? Why are we all fine with this censorious, curated, stilted version of reality? To my mind, Some small part of the scales have fallen from my eyes, and what I see terrifies me, for I can no longer just deride the right-wing media for their distortions. I have to accept that the media I consume are just as manipulative, distorted, and cynical as the media MAGA folks consume. This is a bitter pill to swallow. It's been a long time coming for me because I've had queasy feelings before on other stories, intimations that what I was reading and watching was not journalism, but editorializing, or to put it more baldly, propaganda. But let's get back to Leah Thomas's disaffected teammates. One of them has been quoted widely in right-wing media, referring to Leah Thomas and to her former name when she was male, Will Thomas. She says... Quote, the Ivy League is not a fast league for swimming, so that's why it's particularly ridiculous that we could potentially have an NCAA champion. That's unheard of coming from the Ivy League. On paper, if Leah Thomas gets back down to Will Thomas's best times, those numbers are female world records, faster than all the times Katie Ledecky went in college, faster than any other Olympian you can think of, end quote. Of course, the NCAA has rules on transgender athletes, but they are solely concerned with testosterone. They not only fail to address the skeletal issues I've raised, but also the muscular differences that are not erased with hormone therapy. The rules say, in part, A trans female treated with testosterone suppression medication may continue to compete on a men's team, but may not compete on a woman's team without changing it to a mixed team status until completing one year of testosterone suppression treatment. The problem, as one of Thomas's teammates pointed out, is that if you've gone through puberty as a male especially a male athlete, you've amassed a lot of musculature that is simply not going to melt away when you transition, which is why Will Thomas, a good if not incredible male swimmer, is, as Leah Thomas, totally dominating in women's competitive swimming to the point that she may someday hold the world record in every event she competes in. Yes, Leah, leaving Will behind was the best career move you ever made. Too bad it's unfair to all of those other athletes. Your precious trans rights and sensitivities are more important, qualitatively, apparently, than the quantitative injustice visited upon thousands of biological female competitors. And this viewpoint is being echoed by most mainstream media. There is something wrong here, something rotten, something that does not pass the smell test. And we should all be very concerned, concerned as hell about it. Similar stories exist about trans female runners and weightlifters. And I predict that trans women will come to dominate many sports. And not only do I say that trans women will start to dominate women's sports, perhaps eventually dominating all of them from golf to tennis to swimming, but that no trans man will ever dominate a male sport because they are swimming against the biological tide. It's a rough road to hoe if you are a trans man competing against biological men. It doesn't really matter what people say. You can argue all day long about testosterone versus other advantages, but when you look at Leah Thomas winning by over half a minute in the type of competition that at most is usually won by a handful of seconds and often by tenths or even hundredths of a second, the proof is in the pudding. It is right there for everyone to see. I also predict that eventually people will come to their senses and start limiting or banning trans women from competing with biological women in many sports. It will start with right-wing outrage, but gradually competitors will face the inevitable labeling of bigotry and transphobia and speak out about the injustice of the current state of affairs, and eventually governing bodies will reassess their positions. Perhaps there will be trans-male competitions and trans-female competitions and even trans-male and female events at the Olympics. But right now, goddess forbid anyone mention any of these facts as even pointing them out leads to outraged attacks on the person who utters them, as they're obviously horribly transphobic. But oh, the lovely intersectional irony, an irony so vast and delicious that sooner or later it will bust out of its exile and foist itself upon the woke left. For here we have the narrow area of trans women's rights smashing headlong into the broader area of biological women's rights. We on the left are told, move along, nothing to see here, just go along with the party line. We are encouraged to ignore the manifest anatomical differences and to disregard the relative advantages and disadvantages they confer in track and field and other sports. We are asked to celebrate rather than question unprecedented wins by trans women in sports. Statistics that beggar belief and we are asked to ignore a state of affairs that is unfair to the thousands upon thousands of biological women who've spent their lives training for everything from high school meets to the Olympics, all because of the precedence of trans rights. Would any of you be okay if men were suddenly allowed to compete against women in the 100-meter dash at the Olympics? You'd think that was horribly unfair, or you should because the men would trounce the women. The men know this, the women know this but you've been told that trans women are just women. And every single story from CNN on down has banged it into your head that testosterone is the only meaningful metric by which to judge if a trans woman athlete is sufficiently similar to a biological woman. Leah Thomas's unprecedented astronomical stats belie that assertion. One need not be an anatomist or a scientist to see that something is rotten here. In most media, all of these painfully obvious truths will not be up for discussion, unless you read some right-wing media. So you will be asked to essentially support someone with a man's pelvis and shoulders and general musculature competing against biological women, because you've been taught to ignore the real differences that persist beyond transitioning. You'll be asked to think, to know, that it's just fine for trans women to compete against biological women because gender is, in some ways, defined for you as more of a state of mind, more than any kind of biological reality. That it is something someone believes about themselves and that this belief alone makes all of the manifold complexities involved in the differences and dissonances of how they feel and how they're built magically melt away. But is it that simple? If there are real differences that persist even after reassignment, can we insist that one's beliefs about oneself are enough? That they transcend all other beliefs and all other rights? And if so, why? For example, can I decide I'm really black inside? That I've felt black all my life, and so now insist that people respect my blackness? Like Rachel Dolezal, the white woman who passed herself off as black for most of her life, did? Or perhaps I will insist that I'm not 62 because I feel like I'm 30, so I'll petition the court to let me change my legal age. Or maybe I'll insist that I'm really 6'4 instead of six feet tall, because I think I am. And anyway, it's sexier to be taller. Am I comparing these on their face absurd and hyperbolic questions to the deep feelings of trans people? Am I really that insufferably bigoted? Maybe yes, maybe no. You see, I have no problem at all with someone wanting to change their gender. I have no problem at all with them having the rights that all other citizens have, except where their rights abridge the rights of others. And the demand that trans women be allowed to compete against biological women in sports is just such an abridgment. And I also allow that someone might actually identify with another race. That perhaps they're not donning blackface. Rachel Dolezal grew up with three adopted African-American siblings. Maybe her feeling that she is black is really her truth, her honest truth. Who am I to question that any more than I am to question a trans man or a trans woman? Yes, I can hear heads exploding, but stop for a minute, please, and ask yourself, is this really that much more exotic than someone believing, knowing in their heart of hearts, that they're the opposite of the gender they were born into, the gender their morphology and chromosomes indicate they are? This thought experiment makes everyone deeply uncomfortable. It just feels wrong to ask this question when it's posited about race. I don't know about you, but the first time I heard the suggestion that transracialism might be a real thing, my brain squirmed. But it really is worth thinking about. If you change gender because you know in your heart of hearts that you, born a man, are really a woman, is this fundamentally different than changing race because you feel you may have the wrong pigmentation? Do gonads trump pigment in this argument? And if so, why? Why? And one can say, well, a white person who thinks they're black hasn't lived the black experience, to which I can have a rejoinder that a trans woman has not grown up living the woman's experience. How many girls hit puberty, you know, develop breasts, and suddenly, like, every guy is interested in them? And that's confusing and dispiriting and um, often painful. And... A trans woman has not experienced that. So the argument that you haven't lived the black experience so that you couldn't possibly be black could easily be argued the same for trans men and women, that they haven't lived the experience of the gender they've transitioned to their whole life. They didn't go through puberty with it. They didn't go through childhood with it. They didn't hear boys don't cry <laughs> if they were a woman who transitioned to a man, which I grew up with this you know, constant drumbeat of being a robot and keeping your feelings in and not being expressed. So we have all had experiences unique to race and gender, but wait a minute, you say, we can change gender with hormones and surgery. That's the difference between that and race. Well, besides the fact that lots of people who are called or call themselves black are extremely light skinned, the seminal book, Black Like Me, Written by white journalist John Howard Griffin, who changed his skin color and made other changes like shaving his straight hair off to appear black, and to experience racism firsthand undercover, puts a lie to that assertion. That experiment was conducted in the year of my birth, 1959, and contrary to rumors, the treatment did him no permanent harm. And I'm sure the technology has only come much farther in the last 62 years. I'm sure someone with the will and the money could undergo racial reassignment treatment that would be very convincing. But beyond all that, there's an even more salient reason why race can be viewed as more, not less, provisional than gender. After all, a black man and a white man are genetically, morphologically, neurologically far more similar to each other than any man and woman are to each other. Gender is a massive genetic divide delineated by XX versus XY chromosomes just to start with, while race, as most biologists will tell you, is mostly a societal construct encompassing only a few very minor biological differences indeed. So in reality, changing from black to white or vice versa is a much, much, much smaller leap than changing from a woman to a man or a man to a woman. And yet we insist that gender is mutable and race is cast in stone. We insist upon it because that's what we've been taught, not because it's rational. We hold many assumptions for generations despite their nonsensicality. For example, the ritual mutilation of male babies through circumcision is one such nonsensical, cruel and unhealthy practice, yet it is still very widespread. Someday, this practice will be universally reviled as the barbarity it is. But for now, it's totally accepted by millions upon millions of people, but not by me. Despite my last name, I'm actually a nice Jewish boy and I refuse to have my son circumcised. But as to the mutability of black and white identity, or racial identity in general, I can tell you that I have known several white people who grew up in black neighborhoods and seemed culturally far more black than white to me, and much more importantly, to themselves and to the black friends they've grown up with. And I've known the opposite. People like Spike Lee, who, contrary to his origin story, did not grow up in what was the predominantly black neighborhood of Bed-Stuy, but mere blocks away from me in the effete neighborhood of Cobble Hill. His brother and I played stoop ball together, and we all went to the exclusive St. Ann School in Brooklyn Heights. Some of my well-educated black friends who grew up in predominantly white neighborhoods really present culturally as quite white. If you're too dark to pass as white, but grew up in a white neighborhood with middle class bougie parents who listened to Brahms while they read the Times with their morning coffee, are you still black? Well, when it comes to racial epithets and employment discrimination and many other things, I'd give a resounding yes. But what if you were born super light-skinned into the same family? If you're black, but light enough to pass as white, So you never had to live the black experience of racism. And you've been raised in a more culturally white centric or European centric family. Are you still black? Is it genes, culture, pigmentation or personal self identification that matters? And if it's not personal self identification as it is deemed to be with transgender people, why not? Conversely, If it's some aspect of your genes that supersedes all else to be the determining factor of your race, why not with gender? Why is this not so with transgender people? Why are their genetics not determinative, but they are when it comes to race? This all begins to seem utterly arbitrary. What we feel about ourselves should not be enough on its own. Society has a say. And clearly society is saying, what you feel about your gender is enough and what you feel about your race isn't. It is unfortunate that society even cares about race, but it does, and I dare say, possibly as many black people care about it as white, Asian, Latino, etc. I've certainly known black families that were dead set against one of their own marrying a white or Asian or Latino person. Hell, I've known Jamaican black families that were dead set against one of their own marrying an American black, because they look down on American black people. In many ways, it's also unfortunate that society also cares about gender. But in some areas, like competitive sports, they've always been divided by gender because of obvious biological realities. Realities that are based on physics, not cultural mores. Those divisions have been watered down. Tests for firefighters were changed so that more women could become firefighters. I don't know about you, I really don't care if it's a woman or a man coming to save me in a fire, but they damn well better be able to carry me down four flights of stairs. I do not accept that the test should be watered down just so they have more opportunity if they are physically unable to do the job. Ironically, it is people like me, not the women who fomented for changes to these tests that are actually being gender neutral here, that are demanding that those with the ability to do the job are selected regardless of gender. With transgender athletes, these realities in sport are simply being denied. Is a trans woman donning woman face like a white person donning blackface? If not, why not? I'll leave these even thornier and more discomforting issues for another day, but they are not mere thought experiments to me. They make my brain squirm precisely because they go completely against assumptions I've had about race and about gender, namely that you can't change the former, but you can the latter. These are assumptions. These are what I've been taught. They're not actually based on reason. This is what I've been taught to believe more implicitly than explicitly by the culture at large. And if I'd been brought up in a white conservative Christian household, I would have been taught the opposite. Again, more by example, by osmosis than by having it beaten into me, I suspect. In either event, I owe it to myself. You owe it to yourself to question these facile prefabricated so-called truths. I am not telling anybody what to believe. I am not even sure what I believe. What I do know is that I've become very uncomfortable with Leah Thomas competing against these biological women and just utterly destroying them in terms of performance. Okay, let's stop with these tangents already and get back to the matter at hand. Let's say you were born biologically male, but you felt female for your entire life. Your sense of self, your reality is that you're female. That's all well and good in many areas of life. And if you've walked the walk, if you've transitioned, I will champion your right to live as a woman in almost all ways, including using the women's bathroom, but not in sports. It is simply just as unfair to let trans women compete against biological women as it would be to allow a man to compete against them. And as it was to allow Oscar Pistorius to compete against men with normally constructed legs and feet. And if you haven't transitioned, I'm sorry, but no matter how you feel about yourself, you're still a guy in drag to me. If you're packing a penis, no, you shouldn't be able to use the women's bathroom. Walk your walk or it's just talk, an empty proclamation of your identity that deserves no real alteration in societal structures about sensitive areas like bathroom privileges. But if you, like me, don't believe that trans women should be allowed to compete against biological women, you're probably either a biological woman who competes in sports or someone on the right end of the socio-political spectrum. Very few of my friends on the left-leaning side of the ledger agree with me, and I may indeed lose a few friends over this episode. But this isn't a matter of right or left. It's a matter of right and wrong. The needs of a minority whether that be a minority of one, Oscar Pistorius with his missing calves and feet, or a minority of thousands of trans female athletes, do not automatically override the needs of the majority. No minority, simply by virtue of the fact that they are a minority, automatically has carte blanche to abridge the rights of others. And that's true even if they're a minority that is often horrifically discriminated against and physically assaulted and murdered in large numbers, as trans people are two wrongs do not make a right. Being unfair to biological female athletes simply because trans people have a harder life in this bigoted, violent, fucked up world is neither fair nor just. The inherent weaknesses and internal contradictions of identity politics, which is so replete with simplistic, facile, performative prescriptions, will be discussed in more episodes, because, as the motto of this podcast indicates, the deliberate removal of nuance is a form of intellectual tyranny, one that people on both the left and the right, from trans folks and BLM protesters to MAGA conservatives and white evangelicals, all seem much too prone to indulge in. It is a dumbing down that promotes absolutism and intolerance, and it must be resisted. I hope I'll see you all the next time. Until then, be well and be good to your neighbor. The Cognitive Dissident is written, recorded, voiced, mixed, and produced by me, Samuel Claiborne, for Disreputable Media. The music for this podcast is from my latest album entitled Love, Lust, and Genocide, available on digital streaming and purchasing platforms all over the place. Please visit TheDailyScreamer.com for more content. And please like and subscribe to this podcast and consider donating to our Patreon fund to help us continue the work of questioning assumptions, slaughtering sacred cows, and calling out nude emperors. Thanks for listening.